Live from Ogasawara, this is the Monster Island Film Vault, Episode 3, the Godzilla Anime Trilogy Mini-Analysis. Hello, kaiju lovers, and welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through tokusatsu. I am your host, the curator of this monstrous movie museum, Nathan Marchand. Hmm, that would have been a good podcast title. You're right, Jimmy. The one we have is better, although I am a fan of awesome alliteration. See what I did there? Anyway, I want to first wish all you monster kids a happy Halloween. I know it's not until next week, but I hope you have a great time eating candy and watching your favorite monster movies. Second, welcome to our first mini-sode! You count the first episode as a mini-sode? I guess that makes sense since it was only 15 minutes and the King Kong 33 episode was two hours. Uh, Regardless, this will be my first mini-analysis. In case you didn't know, mini-analyses will focus on films I was unable to cover after leaving my first podcast, Kaiju Vision Radio. And already... I might be biting off more than I can chew because I'm covering the Godzilla anime trilogy, which dropped on Netflix from 2018 to 2019. There's a lot that could be said about it, both good and bad. Although in my case, it'll mostly be good. Odds are about half of you shut off the episode. (sighs) In some ways, this trilogy is like The Last Jedi in that it has divided its respective fan base. And, if I may throw another potentially controversial statement out there, like The Last Jedi, these films are unfairly maligned. (laughs) Good one, Jimmy. Let the hate flow through them. (laughs) This won't be a review, listeners, so if you'd like to hear something more like that from me, I highly recommend listening to the three episodes of the Redeemed Otaku podcast that covered this trilogy. I joined host Beck Smith and my friend Eric Anderson in reviewing each film immediately after they dropped on Netflix. The third episode in particular is one of the best analyses of The Planet Eater in English. Also, my friend and GFest co-panelist Danny DeManna of the Godzilla Novelization Project joined Brian Scherchel as a guest host on three great episodes of Kaiju Vision Radio covering this trilogy. Links to all these are in the show notes. I'll pause to let you listen to them. Welcome back! So, for the sake of time, I will focus primarily on the trilogy's philosophical underpinnings. But first, I'd like to get the kaiju-sized elephant out of the room. Sure, Jimmy, it looks like Behemoth from King of the Monsters. Oy. Listeners, I like these films. A lot. It took time for that to happen because this isn't a self-contained trilogy. Each of these movies, Planet of the Monsters... City on the Edge of Battle, and The Planet Eater, is dependent on the others. They must be viewed as a unit. I liked the first two well enough when I saw them, but it wasn't until I watched Part 3 that my appreciation for the whole trilogy skyrocketed. This is its greatest strength and weakness. This presentation and release schedule left many fans confused and disappointed. 
You can tell these were originally meant to be a TV series. They're almost like anime compilation movies. Heck, even Netflix isn't sure how to classify them. Planet of the Monsters is listed as Episode 1, but the others aren't listed as episodes. Yet, in the credits of each film, they're described as a Netflix original movie. Clarification would have helped them a little. Regardless, I always like the trilogy surprising new takes on many facets of the Godzilla franchise. I realized with the first one that this would be different, that it wasn't going to be a shonen-style Godzilla and Dragon Ball Z sort of anime. It was hard sci-fi with the most cerebral story in a Godzilla film in a long time. In fact, I often describe this trilogy as Evangelion Light. You've never heard of the classic anime series Neon Genesis Evangelion? It's essentially Hideaki Yano's psychological deconstruction of old-school tokusatsu shows and giant robot animes. Oh yeah, lots of kaiju fans learned of him because he and Shinji Higuchi co-directed Shin Godzilla. As I was saying, Evangelion Light most certainly describes the Planet Eater with its philosophizing and dreamlike dives into the character's psyches. It makes far more sense than Ava, though. Trust me, if you saw the movie The End of Evangelion, you'd understand. <sighs> in preparation for this episode, I rewatched the entire trilogy in one sitting. All four and a half hours. It was a bit of an experiment to see if that enhanced my viewing. And I have to say it did. This trilogy feels like one long epic movie. Like an M. Night Shyamalan film, I'm able to make more sense of what I'm seeing and notice things I didn't before. I saw the seams this time, met these constant machinations and the filmmaker's careful foreshadowing of what's to come. Unlike a Shyamalan movie, though, I think this trilogy will hold up better on multiple viewings. Yes, Jimmy, Haro sees dead people. In his dreams? Ha! All right, I want to quickly address some unfair criticisms I've heard many Western fans particularly on other podcasts, lob against this trilogy. I think these were born out of wrong expectations. First, they say, Godzilla doesn't move. Well, actually, he just moves slowly because he's literally the size of a mountain. Heck, before I knew this incarnation's name was Godzilla Earth, I called him Mount Godzilla. He's the one monster who can get eye level with our facility on Monster Island's mountain. We've had to move him to a beta site on a nearby island because he's the biggest kaiju on Earth. And when planes or boats pass by, he's so big and so still, they think he actually is a mountain. So realistically speaking, since this is a more realistic anime, he won't move quickly. I'd argue his size and mass creates a Lovecraftian dread. I feel tiny looking at him because his size is godlike. Second, Fans wanted more kaiju. I admit I expected more since I heard a list of Toho creatures who were slated to appear in Planet of the Monsters, only to see them get cameos in the Pacific Rim-style prologue. The reason it didn't bother me, I think, is because I'm such a science fiction fan that I got engrossed in the world of the movie. There were so many sci-fi tropes and ideas that had never been in a Godzilla film before that I went along with what it was giving me. Plus, as co-directors Hiroyuki Sashita and Koban Shizuno said in an interview, the trilogy's focus is on, quote, Shakespearean human drama, end quote, that tackles, quote, complex issues including the meaning of religion in a futuristic post-apocalyptic universe, end quote. I'm into that. 
I was into that before I discovered Godzilla as a teenager. Third, a related complaint. Fans wanted more kaiju fights. This goes to how Mechagodzilla is only an AI controlling a city and Ghidorah is an intangible energy being with three long spaghetti necks protruding from portals. Flying spaghetti monster? I made that joke and redeemed otaku. You only steal from the best, huh? Flattery will get you nowhere. Anyway, when these radically different versions of the monsters clashed with the slow-moving giant that is Godzilla, well... Let's just say it wasn't King of the Monsters 2019. I didn't see how this is a problem. This is a trilogy that dares to try new things like giving Mechagodzilla the superpower of 3D printing with nanites. I was intrigued by the, uh, by the sci-fi concepts of it all. Also, Ghidorah being intangible made him terrifying. Yes, in terms of fight tactics, the most exciting thing he does is lift Godzilla, but that's equivalent to lifting a landmass. It's insane to think about. Plus, like most hard sci-fi stories, and good stories, period, really, this is a battle of ideas, especially in Planet Eater. It's about Hororo combating the nihilism of Metfees. And as Michael Dougherty said in his King of the Monsters commentary, if you want to stay in the shallow end of the pool and only see Godzilla as cheap entertainment, you can do that. But many of us see and want deeper things from him. Fans also say the kaiju don't have enough screen time. Need I remind everyone that one of the most beloved entries in the Godzilla series, Monster Zero, or Invasion of Astro Monster if you prefer, has a very involved human story and the least amount of screen time for Godzilla, as in 5 minutes and 43 seconds. Hmm. This leads me to the next complaint. This trilogy is too talky. This reminds me of the Rotten Tomatoes consensus for Ang Lee's Hulk. Too much talking, not enough smashing. Yes, it has a lot of exposition, especially in Planet of the Monsters. But that's necessary in a science fiction story. It has to establish the rules and the history of its universe and introduce the characters. If it didn't, I'm sure the audience would be lost. Admittedly, this this trilogy did get a little obsessed with its minutia, kind of like Jimmy, but I was so interested in this universe, I didn't mind. When the action started, it was exciting. Again, I think if the trilogy is watched as a set, it will work better since most of the exposition is in part one. Next, there's Mina and Miana, the reimagined Mothra fairies. It isn't so much their concept, design, or execution that's the problem. It's what they do. Or rather, who they do. Yes, Jimmy, I know it's a family show, but this has to be discussed. Don't worry. I'll be delicate. Thanks to Mina, the nice one, and her desire to help Hororo by, quote, connecting life, end quote, so he, quote, won't lose, end quote, we get the closest thing to a full-fledged sex scene in a Godzilla film. Nothing is shown, but Mina does undress, twice, and sleeps with Hororo on her second attempt. Miana, the sudere, as Bex explains on Redeemed Otaku, on the other hand, removed Hororo's environmental suit to treat his injuries, which got him coated with Mothra dust and enabled him to breathe the air and resist the nanometal. This was interpreted by many fans and podcasts as Miana, well, having sex with an unconscious Hororo. First, there's no clear evidence of this. In fact, everyone who went to the Hotua village was treated with the dust, so I doubt it was through lots of hanky-panky with two girls. Second, the Hotua are a primitive and innocent culture, 
So I can understand why they would see sexuality as a means of comfort and connection. If anything, it could be argued that they have a high view of sexuality. Also, give Haro credit. He turns Mina down the first time. Finally, there's the grandpa issue. Several podcasts have propagated the idea that Haro and Yuko are cousins or siblings or, or at the very least family because they both refer to an old man who dies in the opening scene of Planet of the Monsters as, quote, grandpa. This happens in both the sub and the dub. It's a misunderstanding by the translators. This information comes to me from listener Kyoe Toshi, who is starting her own podcast titled Kaijo in December. She is fluent in both English and Japanese and sent me a short but involved essay when I asked her about this. I can't give all her details here, but Jimmy will include her crash course in Japanese language and culture in his Jimmy's notes next week. Suffice it to say, and apologies in advance if I mispronounce these words, Haruo uses the word jisan in reference to the old man. This is derived from a Japanese word used to denote men in their 60s. The formal word for a grandfather is sofu or osofu. By using jisan, which is an informal word, this indicates a close relationship between Haruo and the old man. It's possible he isn't Haruo's grandfather, but given their interactions in the flashbacks and other contextual clues, he most likely is. But as Kyoe said, quote, Yuko, on the other hand, uses ojichan, which is the polite way of referring to someone else's grandfather, end quote. In other words, they aren't kissing cousins from Kentucky. There's a band name for you. <sighs> now that I've cleared the air, it's time to get to my main topic, the thematic and philosophical conflicts of this trilogy. What's fascinating about each of the four races in it, the humans, the Bilisolato, the Exif, and the Hotua, is each exemplify a different worldview, which, as I said, makes the conflicts in the trilogy philosophical as well as physical. The humans exemplify, well, humanism. While humanism has predecessors going back millennia, the philosophy as we know it came about in the 18th and 19th centuries. The American Humanist Association, whose membership included famous authors Isaac Asimov and my fellow Hoosier, Kurt Vonnegut. You love those guys? Why am I not surprised? Anyhow, the AHA defines humanism as, quote, a progressive philosophy of life that, without theism or other supernatural beliefs, affirms our ability and a responsibility to lead ethical lives of personal fulfillment that aspire to the greater good, end quote. This trilogy and many other futuristic tales fulfill a prediction made by Ernest Renan in 1848. Quote, It is my deep conviction that pure humanism will be the religion of the future, that is, the cult of all that pertains to humanity, all of life, sanctified and raised to the level of a moral value, end quote. Different facets of this are embodied by characters like Leland, Martin, and, of course, Hauro. Leland tells his troops before flying to Earth, instead of a promised land, we will take back the home in front of us. Promised land was a term used by the Israelites throughout the early books of the Bible when they escaped Egyptian slavery and journeyed through the wilderness and eventually conquered the Holy Land. It was the place they were assured would be given to them by God. The humans believed they would find a new home among the stars after leaving Earth, but instead they are forced to return to their proverbial Egypt, as the Israelites often wanted to. Elsewhere, we, see, we hear someone tell Metfis he has, quote, no time for God right now, end quote. In other words, he's too busy fulfilling 
Leland's mandate. The humans rely mostly on their science, military power, and critical thinking to accomplish this goal. Martin constantly seeks scientific explanations and solutions to their problems. Hororo tells a crowd of soldiers, quote, Our greatest weapon is knowledge, end quote. Since he wrote a paper that deduced Godzilla's weakness, he truly believes knowledge would give them victory. But, like Captain Ahab from Moby Dick, Haro's lust for vengeance is hardly masked by his supposed altruism. He tells Yuko, Our planet wasn't the only thing Godzilla stole. Justice, faith, and basic human dignity. He's even taken that away from us. That's why we have to fight Godzilla again. We need to take back the pride we've lost. I have a feeling Haro would have fit in with pre-war Imperial Japan. Heck, he tries to make a kamikaze run at the end of each film. Even after they kill Godzilla Phileas, he admits it, quote, only worked because everyone believed in me, end quote. In other words, because his comrades put their faith in him and not the XF religion. Moments later, the real Godzilla appears and decimates the human forces, smiting them like an angry deity with but a few tail whips. By the end of Planet of the Monsters, all the humans' knowledge, weapons, and efforts have failed them, and they are left hopeless. They neglected the words of author Tony Davies, who admitted it should no longer be possible to formulate phrases like the destiny of man and the triumph of human reason without an instant consciousness of the folly and brutality they drag behind them, end quote. Irony is a... Shut your mouth? What'd you think it was gonna say? It, never mind. Let's move on. The Bill of Saluto takes center stage in City on the Edge of Battle, not to be confused with the amazing Star Trek episode The City on the Edge of Forever by Harlan Ellison, and they exemplify transhumanism. The best definition I found of this philosophy came from Max Moore, who said, quote, Transhumanism is a class of philosophies of life that seek the continuation and acceleration of the evolution of intelligent life beyond its currently human form, and human limitations by means of science and technology guided by life-promoting principles and values, end quote. He also said it, quote, extends from humanism, end quote, because of its, quote, ideas of reason, progress, and enlightenment, end quote. In other words, it isn't based in religion. The Bill of Saluto reflect this attitude. They say the prophecies the old ex of priest gets from his tablet are, quote, just mathematics, end quote, Haro tells Yuko that Bellubi said, quote, any intellectual life relying on religion is immature, end quote. While the ideas behind transhumanism have existed for centuries, the movement is generally believed to have been founded by biologist Julian Huxley, who, interestingly, was the brother of Aldous Huxley, author of Brave New World. He used the term in an influential 1957 article. In it, he wrote, quote, up until now, human life has generally been, as Hobbes described it, nasty, brutish, and short. The great majority of human beings, if they have not already died young, have been afflicted with misery. We can justifiably hold the belief that these lands of possibility exist, and that the present limitations and miserable frustrations of our existence could be in large measure surmounted. The human species can, if it wishes, transcend itself. Not just sporadically, an individual here in one way, an individual there in another way, but in its entirety as humanity, end quote. This, ultimately, is what the Bilisolados seek to do to defeat Godzilla, transcend their biological limitations and become one with Mechagodzilla through the nanometal. 
They would shed their inefficient physical bodies and become beings of pure logic because only intelligent beings can rule the environment. Galugu gives two speeches explaining this. As his men fuse with the nanometal, he says, Now is the time for us to use the blade of knowledge and purpose and cut the chains of destiny. Feel yourselves. Allow yourselves to be consumed by it. The land of beginning. Ever since the first axe struck a tree, this is the future that was promised to us. It's either that bastard or us that survives as the ruler. This sounds like a concept in transhumanism called Tipler's Omega Point. Max Moore says the gist of this idea, which is similar to that of the singularity, is that an intellectual realm driven by computing power will reach a state where all matter in the universe reaches an infinite point and becomes part of a thinking device, a single mind. By doing this, human brains will become vastly more powerful. Later, Galagou tells Haruro, quote, All monsters are called monsters because they cannot be defeated by people. To defeat what has surpassed human intellect is outside the capacity for human achievement. The moment you decided you'll defeat Godzilla, you aspire to become something that isn't human anymore. End quote. In other words, Haro can only defeat Godzilla by becoming transhuman. Implicitly, Galagu is telling Haro that to kill a monster, he must become a monster. Or perhaps, to put it nicely, he must become a god to kill a god. Just like the Bill of Saluto, transhumanists have a huge interest in technology, particularly technology that can enhance the human condition. This includes biotechnology, information technology, cognitive science, and of course, nanotechnology. They also like theoretical sciences like virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and cryonics. They see these as a means to improve human lifespans, intellectual capacities, and body functionalities, among other things. Mechagodzilla in this trilogy is an AI the Bill of Saluto built to kill Godzilla. And, to quote a famous cyborg, they are quite proud of the technological terror they have constructed. But as science fiction has frequently pointed out, AI may prove to be uncontrollable. One of the best lines in the trilogy relates to this. It's spoken by Metfees. If your Mechagodzilla would have worked, who might it have turned its fangs on next? Therein lies the Bill of Saluto's hubris. Like many of Toho's alien races, they are undone by their over-reliance on technology. In the end, Haworo chooses humanity over technological transcendence, especially when it's being forced on him and Yuko, and the Bill of Saludos attempt to kill Godzilla with the same tactics as the humans, but with supposedly superior technology, fails with Mechagodzilla City destroyed. You like transhumanism? <laughs> Have fun chasing the singularity! You'll let me know when you get there? Okay. <laughs> now, about that exif cult. It's of particular interest to me because I'm a practicing Christian. There's a lovely little chapel here on Monster Island set up for members of the various religions represented in the staff. It's great. I bring this up because much ado has been made about Metfees and his Ghidorah worshippers. I heard one podcast claim that the directors are anti-religion, but I haven't been able to confirm that. If it's true, please email me at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. I don't think this trilogy is anti-religion so much as it's anti-zealotry, which would be in line with how it's criticizing other philosophies being taken to the extreme. The Exif definitely have a sci-fi religion. Metfees quotes science fiction author Arthur C. Clarke, I'm glad he's one of your favorites, Jimmy, but please don't interrupt me. As I was saying, 
Clark famously coined what became known as Clark's Three Laws, the third of which is, quote, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, end quote. Exif science advanced to the point that they were able to commune with interdimensional beings and see all the way to the end of time. They saw that the universe would end in entropy. This is why they welcomed death. Metfi says things like, It is a blessing to be destroyed. Life is a continuation of fear. And the road to destruction is intended to be a peaceful one. It's pure nihilism. A beef in literal nothingness. That's why the ex of Welkin Ghidorah and willingly offered themselves to him like they were members of a death cult in an H.P. Lovecraft story. Since all will come to nothing, they may as well sacrifice themselves to this god so he can enter our universe and consume it. But are the Exus beliefs a religion or a cult? It's often hard to tell the difference between a cult and a new religious movement. What some call cults, others consider to be legitimate religions, like the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. Indeed, many of the traditions and teachings of mainstream religions might be considered weird or harmful. I'm not Catholic, but I find the idea of transubstantiation, that the bread and wine used in communion literally become the body and blood of Christ, to be a wee bit disturbing. While Christians have a theological definition for cults, I'm going to focus on the sociological characteristics put forward by Margaret Thaler Singer. Let's see if the exif fit the bill. Veneration of a charismatic leader? Check! Inverted power structure with the leader at the top and the others at the bottom? Check! Thought control? Check! Singer says, quote, The key to successful thought reform is to keep the subjects unaware that they are being manipulated and controlled, and especially to keep them unaware that they are being moved along a path of change that will lead them to serve interests that are to their disadvantage, end quote. That describes Metfis and the Exif to a T. Next, there's disallowance from dissent with the belief system. I'd say check. While Metfis is a shrewd and arrogant manipulator, he pays little attention to those who don't convert because he figures they'll be dead soon. However, he hammers into Hororo's head that he, Hororo, is the hateful hero needed to bring Ghidorah into our universe and that he should embrace that inevitability. Quoting Infinity War now? I suppose Thanos does have a few things in common with Metfis. All right. Next, we have exclusion from family and friends. Check! Martin tells Haro that he keeps his mouth shut about the exif religion because its zealotry will lead to hanging. Finally, there's secrecy of information or what some call, quote, heavenly deception or, quote, transcendental trickery. Huge check! Mephis never tells any of the desperate humans who convert that his plan is to sacrifice them to Ghidorah. So, in light of all this, I think we can agree that the Exif religion has more in common with Jonestown, Heaven's Gate, and Amshin Rikyo than your local corner church. Churches don't typically require mass ritual suicide. In fact, Metvis has his followers drink a soup as part of the ceremony to summon Ghidorah. That's not unlike the Jonestown suicides. <sighs> Jonestown. A cult started by Jim Jones in my home state of Indiana. That guy gives Hoosiers a bad name. Regardless, Jones made his followers drink Flavor-Aid, not Kool-Aid as most believe, laced with cyanide and other poisons as an act of, quote, 
revolutionary suicide protesting the conditions of an inhumane world, end quote. He was a radical socialist who despised capitalism. As the poison took effect on his followers, he told them, quote, die with a degree of dignity. Lay down your life with dignity. Don't lay down with tears and agony, end quote. He added, quote, I tell you, I don't care how many screams you hear. I don't care how many anguished cries. Death is a million times preferable to 10 more days of this life. If you knew what was ahead of you, if you knew what was ahead of you, you'd be glad to be stepping over tonight, end quote. I can't help but think of Metvis leading his victims in their nihilistic prayer, asking that Ghidorah, the golden death, would feast upon them. Then in one of the most horrifying scenes in the entire Godzilla franchise, Ghidorah emerges as a shadow from a portal and kills everyone who drank the soup. However, Amshin Rikyo was probably the most immediate influence on this trilogy since this was a Japanese doomsday cult that formed in 1984. Its leader believed he was the Christ and combined many different doctrines from Buddhism, Hinduism, Christian eschatology, and Nostradamus. Their name is usually translated as Om Supreme Truth. He prophesied that a third world war would be started by the U.S., and the world would end in 1997. That's right, Jimmy. Someone canceled the apocalypse! (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) the group is infamous for carrying out a sarin gas attack in 1995 on a Tokyo subway, which killed 13 commuters and injured 54 others. So we have a doomsday cult with a charismatic leader who cobbles various beliefs together into some bizarre amalgam. Sounds an awful lot like Metvis, who speaks of God, using pseudo-biblical-sounding language while manipulating events to bring about the end of the world. Speaking of manipulation, I was listening to another podcast covering this trilogy, and the host asked, What historical figures do you think could have been ex-evagents? Hitler? Gandhi? Jesus? (sighs) To say I was flabbergasted would be an understatement. Yes, Metvis says the ex have manipulated events in Earth's history to create Godzilla as an offering to Ghidorah. Hitler, I'll give him. Even a cursory reading of World War II history will tell you the Nazis were a culture of death. But Gandhi and Jesus? Gandhi had his issues. He was a bit of a racist, among other things. But I doubt a spiritual pacifist like him would be in league with the ex And Jesus? Read the Sermon on the Mount. I doubt a Ghidorah death cultist would tell people, love your enemies. If anything, Jesus would have been fighting against the Exif's machinations. Now, could the Exif have twisted Christ's teachings to their own ends? Heck yes! History is replete with examples of that. Evil by its nature can't create. It can only corrupt what was already good. Sorry, Mr. Host. I think you give the ex of too much credit. So, if these races and their respective philosophies all failed, what is the solution? Well, I think the Hotua have an answer. When Mina and Miana stand before Mothra's altar to address everyone, they say telepathically, quote, The Hotua will walk the path of harmony and life. End quote. This is the alternative philosophy, a balance of the others. They serve Mothra, who is a goddess of life, not death. They pray to her, and she intervenes, 
Keep in mind, she frees Haruro from Metvi's influence, but she still allows them to take action after revealing the truth to them. The Hotua do use technology, albeit low technology, because bows and arrows still count as such. Heck, they salvage nanometal, carve it into arrowheads, and kill Servum with it. And yet, they also live simply with nature. They seek to connect with others through telepathy and, yes, sexuality, and not dilute themselves in a hive mind. As I said before, the Hotua have an elevated view of sex because they see it as a means of relationship and comfort. Mina tells Haruro, quote, Win is survive, live on, connect life. Losses die, disappear. To challenge Godzilla, Haruro must win. From now on, with us, together, I can connect life. End quote. Some might say this is naivete, but I see it as innocence. Mina says the Hotua don't even have a word for hatred. They remind me of the Hrasa, Sorens, and Fiffle Triggy from Out of the Silent Planet by C.S. Lewis. These aliens from the planet Malakandra, or Mars, were unfallen, as in they were free of the propensity for sin and evil. The Hotua think Godzilla is scary like a tornado or lightning, so they respect him like they do the rest of nature, thereby avoiding conflict with him, and he seems content to leave them alone. When the humans discard their weapons during the montage in Planet Eater, I see that less as a renunciation of technology and more as a renunciation of war and violence, because all the tech we see is their spacesuits and rifles. It was established that mankind's drive to dominate each other, which included war, was what led to the creation of monsters like Godzilla. By giving this up, they were preventing that from happening again. Then all of them, except Haworo, dress like Hotua, a visual representation of a new life. Even the bizarre post credit scene in the Planet Eater expresses this. The Hotua children are casting their scare things onto an effigy of Haworo, which is burned as a symbol of them renouncing their fears. This leads me to my last topic, which both expands on this idea and addresses a common misconception about this trilogy. There are those who think the ending is nihilistic. Far from it! At least once in each entry, we see flowers blooming amidst the hardened metallic foliage, and this is taken as a sign of hope by the characters. This deepens when it's revealed in the Planet Eater during a dreamlike flashback that Haruro's parents chose his name because it means spring. Their conversation went like this. Is this a flower? Yes, I made it as a charm for him, a spring flower. Even in the coldest of winters, the snow will melt and spring return. It's the season when life is reborn. That's right. It's hope. Let's name him after that hope. That's perfect. Haruro. Your name is Haruro, my son. By the end, when Martin tells Haruro that he'd managed to repair a vulture mech, Haruro hears Metvis in his head telling him it was the first step toward a future where Ghidorah could return. That and his undying hatred for Godzilla. For this reason, he tells Mina he must face Godzilla again. If you go, you'll lose, she says. You're right. But if life is only about winning, we're the same as beasts. But what makes us human is... If we need to, we can choose to lose the battle. I don't understand, she replies. You don't have to understand. Ever. I guess if I stayed, you'd come to understand it eventually. His final kamikaze run against Godzilla isn't a suicide of despair. It's a noble sacrifice. He dies to prevent his hatred, his sin, from continuing to future generations, thereby barring Ghidorah from our universe. That's why he smiles just before Godzilla blasts him. 
he finally finds the peace he was looking for. So, unlike Captain Ahab, his death by the monster that wounded him is not a tragedy. This is further symbolized by the final shot of flowers growing by a mountain. That took longer than I expected. Hey, Jimmy, you'll have a lot for your notes next... Jimmy? Listeners, he's on the phone. Who's he... You have the president of the island's board of directors on the line, and he says I violated our contract by going too long with this minisode? Well, I'm not about to let him shoot me into space. You tell him I covered a trilogy in this minisode instead of one film, so it's essentially three minisodes worth of material. Thanks, Jimmy. You should get a bonus for practically being my agent. With that, listeners, I'll close up shop here on the Monster Island Film Vault. But what do you think? Do you like the anime trilogy? Did you pull out the same themes and ideas I did? Or do you have some different ones? Send me feedback via the podcast email address in the credits. Speaking of which, Jimmy, cue credits. He's still on the phone. Well, as Thanos said, fine, I'll do it myself. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nathan Marchand. If you enjoy the show and want to join the discussion, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Your message could be read on a future episode of the show. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. Follow us on Facebook at Monster Island Film Vault and on Twitter, where our handle is themonsterisla1. You can also follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASA Jimmy. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wander on the Offensive, live edit by B33J, Sarax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack, Battle with the Colossus, and The Open Way, Battle with the Colossus by Koatani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus can be downloaded from ocremix.org. All film and audio clips belong to their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube, and other fine podcatchers. Please rate and review the podcast to help spread the word about the show. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas Media production. Sayonara! <laughs>